What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris, and I have another awesome author here today, and it is Christian Jarrett. So Christian recently came out with a book this year, and it's called Be Who You Want. All right. And the subtitle is Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. So we'll kind of dive into this. Uh, Christian and I discuss it in this episode. But I, for a long time, have been very skeptical of uh, you know, the quote unquote science around personality change, right? But at the same time, even though I'm skeptical because of some of the, you know, the um, issues with like the Myers-Briggs test and all that, like, even though I, I, I'm i like, okay, well, the science doesn't really, you know, line up. And, you know, there's a lot of very smart people who disagree with this. Uh, at the same time, I know that I have recovered from drugs and alcohol and I'm a completely different person than I used to be even my first one, two, three years sober. And I've even changed in the last nine years. So I knew there was something there. So anyways, I grabbed a copy of uh, Christian's book, heard a lot of people, you know, talking about it leading up to its release. I read it. I'm like, all right, all right. This dude, Christian knows his stuff and he, and he looks into the science and he provides the data and all that. But yeah, it's interesting. And we touch on this in our conversation, but you know, throughout this book, like Christian cites so many different, uh, you know, studies and, you know, um, personality tests and all that, but he doesn't mention the Myers-Briggs. And I actually asked him why not in this episode, but, but yeah, I was like, okay, I respect this dude. And this book is legit. And it actually gave me some answers about it. But, you know, we also talk about like, you know, being an introvert versus an extrovert, you know, how we can kind of manage that, you know, uh, because it does feel that sometimes, you know, the world is kind of pushing us introverts towards being extroverted. But yeah, like the best part about the book is that, you know, so many people, so many people, and I've met people like this, uh, I used to be someone like this, where, you know, we, we think that we cannot change that our personality is fixed. But as Christian shows in this book, the science says otherwise. So yeah, this is a, a fantastic book. I'm so glad we finally uh, got to talk about it. So make sure you head down to the description below and check out this book uh, from Christian Jarrett. And you can follow him over on Twitter as well. All that stuff's linked down in the description. And while you're down in the description, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter as well at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And I just love talking with all of you. And by the way, if you're new, if you're new, do me a favor, do me a favor, make me a promise. If you enjoy this episode, all right, you're going to, you're going to subscribe to it. All right. You're going to subscribe to the Rewired Soul podcast. All right. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to love it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Christian Jarrett about his new book, Be Who You Want. Hello, Christian. Thank you so much for taking some time to, yeah, come on the podcast and talk about your awesome book, Be Who You Want. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm super glad that we're able to talk. So the, the, first, the first thing I wanted to kind of ask you and discuss a, a little bit is um, I, I really enjoyed the book, I think, because like, I really enjoy like the science of psychology and, you know, trying to understand, you know, personality. And one of the reasons is because I've personally experienced it. I was 
you know, a drug addict for a long, long time. And, you know, uh, when I was 27 years old in 2012, I got sober and, you know, like, uh, personalities, you know, in psychology, we talk about things like the, the dark triad, right? So I assume I would have been super high on the dark triad if I took one of these tests back then. But now I've been sober for a little over nine years and I'm a completely different person. And yeah, like my son doesn't even remember who I used to be back then because he was so young. So yeah, I felt stuck for a super long time. And I know a lot of people just want to give up because they feel that they can't change. So do you ever encounter people who believe that they can't change? And why do you think we believe that our personalities are, are fixed? And what's your go-to research uh, that, you, that you kind of discuss to prove to people that change is possible? Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, it's wonderful to hear your own personal story as well, Chris. Uh, when I was researching the book, I encountered many uh, inspirational tales like yours of people who, who had achieved positive and meaningful personal change. And these stories and anecdotes, they really helped complement the research literature that I uncovered that showed the possibility of personality change. That said, you're absolutely right. I have met people who feel they can't change, uh, who believe the people around them uh, can't change. I think, uh, you know, there could be various reasons for this. Our personalities, we, we see them as uh, part of who we are. They provide an anchorage to our self-identity as well. Another thing is people might have tried to change and really found it very difficult and struggled. Uh, you know, we know from the research literature around um, addiction, for example, just how hard it is for people sometimes to achieve meaningful change. So people might have tried and struggled and, you know, that, that could have uh, fed into their beliefs. Another thing is psychology itself has had this kind of battle going on for decades between the so-called, uh, situationists, you know, who believe our behavior is influenced much more by the situations we're in from moment to moment than it is by our traits. And then you had the the personality trait theorist making the opposite case, uh, that personality is a, a meaningful, useful construct and that our personalities shape our behavior, uh, from moment to moment. And they were kind of locked in this battle and the personality trait theorists maybe overstated their side, you know, and well, you could trace that back actually all the way to William James. The uh, great American psychologist who famously said that beyond age 30, our personalities are set like plaster and we can't change anymore. So, so some of these kind of arguments and debates would have fed through into uh, folk theories around personality and, you know, might have led people to believe that the whole, you know, almost by definition, personality is something that you can't change, but you know, as I argue in the book, what the re latest research is showing and what a, a consensus is emerging now around this idea that although personality is definitely a meaningful concept, our traits predict all sorts of outcomes in life, uh, from our health and our career success and our relationship outcomes and experiences, all these kind of things, although personality is meaningful and it's relatively stable, it certainly isn't fixed. 
uh, there is the potential for change. So, oh, I, I like a quote from uh, the personality psychologist, uh, Samin Bazir. She summed it up by saying, you know, when it comes to personality, there is plenty we can hold on to and plenty that we can change. And I think that's, uh, you know, kind of a nice balance of, of, of the reality. When, when it comes to you ask about, uh, you know, the best evidence or my turn to evidence, I suppose, well, some of the most convincing evidence to me is these longitudinal studies that have emerged over recent years that have tracked the same, uh, cohort of people over decades. And that there was a Scottish study, for example, that, that comes to mind that covered, uh, I don't know, it was. I think it might've been about 63 year stretch and they had personality data on the same people from when they were teenagers and then, uh, you know, uh, when they were much older in their seventies, I think. And they actually found, they compared the personality trait scores across that, uh, all those decades and they found actually virtually no correlation between the two. You know, the, the amount of change was huge, um, in these personality test scores. And there have been other studies, similar ones that have followed the same individuals over decades, finding again, considerable, a significant personality change. Um, so, and then complementing those kind of studies, I suppose my turn to evidence as well is, you know, I don't think it, we should entirely dismiss anecdotal accounts and mem people's memoirs. And I included a lot of those in my book as well these stories of people's lives who, you know, where people have completely, in a sense, completely changed their personalities from one part of their life to another. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And, you know, something, you know, I was, I was thinking about it as, as you were, you know, discussing that was that, you know, I, I've worked with people, you know, I, I worked in a treatment center for a while and, you know, I've had friends and all that, where we have these discussions and people think that, you know, they can't change right and something i i often say like a great example is like we're, we're different than we were obviously like when we were five years old right but you know as you mentioned uh you know there's there's this idea that still that still sits around that you know in our 30s like it's it's pretty much set in stone but you know again i look to my own experience like i i try to think scientifically about just even my own experiences right so for example my, if my mind tells me, oh, your, your personality's fixed, you can't change all that stuff. Well, like 2019, major, major event for me, right? Uh, and 2020, for example, I'm sure a lot of people can look back in their experience during COVID. Well, anyways, looking back at that or a major life event in recent years and just say, have I changed? How have I changed? Right? Like, I feel like I've grown and changed quite a bit. And especially because I read so many books. Uh, I feel like that's helped me change. So I, I, I look towards evidence that disproves these ideas, uh, personally, but, but yeah, like, like you mentioned, uh, you know, I love that they have these, these studies, these longitudinal studies where they track people over years and they could see these personality changes. Um, so, so one of the first books, uh, that I actually read on personality was Susan Cain's awesome book, Quiet. And she discusses the benefits of being an introvert. So in your book, you discuss introversion and extroversion as well. 
And you explain how sometimes our personality is situational, right? You talked about that in the book and you mentioned it, you know, a, a minute ago, right? So um, when I was learning about this, it really helped me to understand why I'm able to do like public speaking or, you know, this podcast or my YouTube channel, because I am very introverted. Like when I'm around people for too long, it drains me if I have to interact. Uh, a great example is when I was working at the treatment center, I would do a group. They were like an hour, hour and a half long. And sometimes I would do two groups in a day. And it felt like someone just sucked the life force out of me. <laughs> but anyways, in Susan Cain's book, she has this theory that our culture kind of glorifies extroversion and everything, you know, from school to jobs to like trainings and all that is kind of pushing people to be more outgoing. So what are your thoughts on this? And do you, have you found like any benefits to being introverted based on your research or should introverts work a little bit more towards these extroverted practices? Well, I, I definitely identify as an introvert myself, I should say. And I loved Susan Cain's book too. I mean, it, it, it was amazing. Um, and I should say, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being an introvert. As Susan Cain argued, introverts, strong introverts as well, they have, you know, huge strengths. Uh, but what I touch on in my book uh, quite a lot is this idea that you can uh, increase your extroversion if you want to. There are ways to do that. There are strategies and with enough persistence you can. And the reason you might want to do that, well, if you feel you're introvert tendencies are holding you back, uh, in your career or other goals you might have, it might be, you know, in your uh, social life, in your relationships, uh, even being, a, I don't know, something like being a better parent, you might find, you know, it's, it's a challenge if you have strong introverted tendencies. So that's one reason for, for trying to become more extroverted would be because you you feel your introverted tendencies are frustrating you in some way. I was also inspired somewhat by a whole series of studies that have now come out that have shown uh, we all, whether introverted or not, um, tend to uh, be happier or have be in better mood, a better, more positive mood when we're acting more extroverted than normal. And in a way that makes sense because, you know, we're all human, social contact is important for, you know, for nearly everyone, uh, there, there might be some rare exceptions, you know, loners who genuinely prefer to be on the road all the time, but you know, introverts, uh, also most introverts also enjoy relationships and gain a lot from them. And so, uh, <clears throat> becoming more acting, more extroverted, it's not really that much of a surprise that it's, uh, being correlated with greater happiness. Uh, we also know extroverts, you know, across their lives do tend to be happier. They tend to be more optimistic. And so, you know, there are, there is a case, uh, for, you don't have to completely transform yourself, you know, from one extreme to the other, but there's a case to be made for, um, tweaking your personality to be a little further along the spectrum towards extroversion, if you want to. And I, sh I should say as well, there, there are even new findings coming out, you know, challenging this idea that, well, the difference between introverts and extroverts is that introverts are exhausted 
by socializing, whereas extroverts find it energizing. That there was a study came out that showed extroverts too uh, find it tiring. They enjoy it, but they find it tiring as well. And I, you know, I found that empowering in a way because, you know, it's not like there's something wrong with you as an introvert. If you find it tiring after you being with your friends for the afternoon or being to a party, you know, we all find it tiring, whether we're introvert, extrovert or whatever. Um, the important thing is, you know, to, there are, to, to know that there are ways you can change your traits, including the introversion, extroversion tra uh, trait dimension. If you want it, if you feel it will be beneficial to you and help you achieve what matters to you in life. That is actually, uh, super interesting. And yeah, now I'm curious about, you know, uh, these kind of new studies and finding that extroverts get, <laughs> get kind of exhausted, uh, as well. But I, I, I love how, you know, uh, how you put that, um, you know, looking at, you know, our situation. Right. So like when it comes to a job and things like that, like, for example, I, for a long time, uh, worked in like sales. It was very client facing and all that. And I think part of it, you know, aside from like, like having like social anxiety, part of it was, I was just, you know, burnt out, just having to, you know, act extroverted all day long. You know what I mean? So I, I've personally kind of just, you know, since then, um, found jobs where it's not as client facing, you know what I mean? Or, or, you know, interact, but you know, like right now, for example, during my day job, we have a very small team, right? There's like, I think less than 10 of us. And yeah, so, so it's not like crazy huge. And, you know, there's not a ton of talking, especially since the pandemic and we're all working from home. But anyways, I'm glad that you touched on that too. We are social creatures and, you know, two things I've learned, like just, you know, being somebody who's all about mental health and reading so many books on mental health is, you know, the, the two things are get good sleep and don't isolate, right? Like those are like two very simple things you can do for your mental health. So, so yeah, like, uh, it, it's good not to isolate and just be completely alone. Even if it's just hanging out with friends and all that, that kind of stuff, you know, and, um, something that I've, I've tried to do, it's been different, you know, the last year and a half since the pandemic, but like force myself to go out and, you know, do these kind of like um, activities with large groups of people and stuff like that, whether it was just to, you know, be there for a friend and their birthday party, rather than like making up an excuse and not going and all that, because just personally, just, this is me just like, you know, it's not always about me. And sometimes it's like, okay, go out, you know, and if you need to, like, uh, or if I need to, I set like a, a certain time frame. like I'll be there until this time, but I do it. And that's how I get, I get my fill of going out. Um, but yeah, so, so as you know, uh, let's talk about the, the Myers-Briggs for a second. So there's been a lot of like skepticism and, you know, uh, criticisms around the Myers-Briggs, right? And, you know, even the whole science of personality. So, you know, I, I was kind of surprised, like in your book, you don't really touch on the Myers-Briggs test. I was kind of curious. So. Um, earlier I was mentioning that, you know, I've changed over the years and I've experienced this, but at the same time, I also try to look at different research with skepticism. So I guess my question to you is what's the best evidence of the science behind personality change? And is there a reason that the Myers-Briggs gets a bit more criticism than some of these other personality tests? Yeah. Criticism of the Myers-Briggs, 
personality test. Um, you, you're absolutely right. I, I don't cover this test in my book. I, I think it was, I, I did have a section on it in an earlier draft of the book that, that we cut out later on. My book is very much grounded in, uh, the big five trait theory, as well as, uh, the dark triad, the Myers-Briggs, um, I, th I think it receives a lot of criticism more than other approaches to personality cause, um, as I'm sure you're aware of, of its history. So it was, um, it was developed by a mother and daughter team, uh, who didn't have any professional training in psychology. It was very much, uh, rooted in, in the purpose of finding a fit between individuals and occupations. And it, it's all ethos really is that we have each of us, a distinct personality type, one of 16, and we're stuck with that type. It's fixed and that to be happy and for the world to work well, you know, uh, each person needs to be in an occupation that fits their type. So it's a very, in a way, it's a very, uh, constraining and limiting approach, uh, you know, that it runs totally counter to the thesis of my book, it, it, it's criticized more than most because, um, it's considered by scientific personality psychologists to la lack reliability and validity. So reliability is the reliability of a test is how much, uh, if you take it on one occasion, how much you will get the same or similar result when you take it on another occasion and the Myers breaks is considered to be unreliable. Like, you know, you take the test twice, even in close succession, and you will get a different answer. It, it will give you a different answer, a different reading. And validity is how much a test measures what it purports to be measuring. And again, the Myers-Briggs is considered to lack validity, which is not surprising because it's not grounded in sound personality theory. So that's the problem with it. You know, you're only going to get out from it, uh, or what you do get out from the test is going to be bogus, as critics would say, but it, because it's not rooted in sound personality theory. Um, you ask about the best evidence for personality change, uh, which as I say, would actually, you know, contradicts the Myers-Briggs, uh, take on things because the, uh, the Myers-Briggs test and approach sees personality types as fixed or well, the best evidence for personality change. I would say is, well, the lifespan type research I mentioned before, where the same cohorts of people have been followed over decades, uh, those kind of studies have shown, for example, how our personality traits evolve through life. So we, we generally tend to become less neurotic. In other words, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're calmer. We experience fewer negative emotions, which is a welcome finding, I think. Uh, we tend to become less extroverted as we get older. Conscientiousness shows an inverted U-shape. So, uh, our conscientiousness tends to rise through life up to midlife and then tends to decline into older age. Openness tends to go down the older we get and agreeability tends to go up. So these are the kind of, it's called the maturation hypothesis. And it's, uh, this idea that our personality traits gradually mature in largely positive ways as, as we grow older.
other evidence of personality change comes from life events research. Findings showing that major events in life, like marriage, divorce, becoming a parent, um, bereavement, getting a job, getting a job promotion, all these kind of things tend to have consequences for personality traits. Now they often aren't uniform. So when you do a big study with loads of people and try and look for a reliable pattern, studies often won't find kind of a simple, consistent way that these events, life events affect people's personalities. And that's probably because these events have obviously a huge subjective component. The experience for one, you know, divorce for one person, for example, is very different uh, than it is f uh, for another person. So the effects on personality are hard to predict. Uh, but that said, there is a considerable evidence that these events do shape personality and the roles that we take on shape our personalities as well. And, um, other evidence for personality change, um, it comes from, uh, psychotherapy research. So a huge study, uh, a few years ago came out that looked at all the psychotherapeutic trials that had also measured people's personality traits and it showed even just, um, I should say me measured people's personality traits before and after therapy. And the study found that just a few weeks of therapy actually in some, in, in many cases led to meaningful trait changes, especially lower neuroticism and increases in extroversion. There's also a burgeoning field or looking at intentional personality changes. It's pretty new. And the studies so far are fairly short term, but these studies also have shown that when people have clear intentions to change their personalities, that they can, they can shift their traits in the direction that they want. Uh, an important caveat there is it makes a huge difference to her if you have specific plans for how you intend to change and it makes a huge difference if you, uh, carry through, carry those plans through. If you don't, if someone has intentions to change their personality, but they don't have any specific plans in place for how to do it, and they don't actually do anything differently, then the findings there suggest the intentions backfire. And, and if anything, you get a kind of, uh, regression, you know, people see their traits, uh, go in the opposite direction to what they wanted, probably out of frustration. So. Again, as I argue in the book, it's absolutely vital if you wish to change your personality traits, that you have some specific plans in place for how to do that and that you follow up your intentions with action. It's absolutely vital. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now that you kind of mentioned that, uh, Chris and some of the stuff around the Myers-Briggs and like the validity and all that, like kind of gets me like a little riled up like that. That's crazy to think like, you know, you get like INFJ or what I'm probably, I think I'm forgetting a letter, but anyways, anyways, like to think that, uh, you know, um, I'm a certain personality type on the Myers-Briggs, then I have a child and I'm exactly the same and I don't change. I'm not you know, I don't, I don't mature at all or, or anything like that. Or, you know, like, uh, say, say a kid goes to, you know, war, you know, like Afghanistan, that whole thing's going on right now and people coming back, like, have they changed in any way? You know what I mean? And yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about this in a minute, but I think about 
you know, the ideas of, you know, just even um, personality tests at, at, you know, uh, at work, at companies where they give employees personality tests. Like, I couldn't imagine putting somewhere, someone in a position on the assumption that their personality is fixed and this is the best place for them as though they're not going to change. But I also like how you talked about these studies before and after therapy. Like, I think, uh, you know, a prime example, I think about the anger issues that I used to have, like that, like not only, uh, you know, anger, but just the selfishness and self-centeredness. And you talk about, you know, people growing and conscious, uh, conscientiousness and stuff like that. Like, would it like, imagine somebody going to an, uh, you know, anger management, right. To try to improve or, or couples therapy or something, and then just, just saying, Oh, nope, it'll never work. You're, you're this type of personality and all that. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot lately just about how we love putting labels and categories on stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, similar to astrology. We're like, oh, this is, this is my sign. And the Myers-Briggs is like a, a personality aspect, <laughs> like a, a kind of like astrology for personality. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so we were chatting about this, uh, uh, on Twitter, but yeah, my girlfriend and I, we, we watched that HBO documentary, uh, persona. All right. And, and yeah, so a lot of it, a lot of it was criticizing, you know, the Myers-Briggs and, but they talked a lot about different, you know, stories, like from individuals and, you know, some of it was around, uh, uh, you know, job applications and gauging your personality and all that. But yeah, a ton of criticisms throughout. I was, I kind of didn't know when I jumped into the documentary, I'm like, oh, which way, which way is this going to go? Right. So I, I'm curious since this is your thing and you like, you study it. Like, what do you think about companies using personality tests to screen employees? Like if the research shows that, you know, personalities can change, should any of us be judging people like based on their current per personality? And I, I guess that even goes, you know, beyond just uh company's screening for that during the application process. So, yep, I, I've, I've watched this documentary. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was brilliant. It's quite uh, moving in places. It's based, uh, as I understand it, largely on the brilliant book by Merv Emery. Uh, and I, I, I believe she was a producer on the documentary as well. Um, as to your question about, yeah, my thoughts on the use of personality tests in, uh, job recruitment. Well, I would say I'm, I'm torn really. Uh, that's my honest answer. I mean, I, I, I'm not a, you know, a, um, business consultant and, uh, I, I don't know much about the ethics and the law around these things, but just, you know, on my own personal take is I'm torn, I suppose, because. I know a lot of recruitment practices are based on the recruiters end up falling back on their gut instinct, you know, in, in if they're unstructured. So if you, if you have an old fashioned job interview, as uh, the recruiters are just going on the, the impressions they make of the candidates, obviously if you, if you follow a kind of an unstructured, unscientific approach like that, bias is potentially such a huge issue, you know. The recruiters are going to be more likely to, to make decisions based on what they, the visible markers of the candidate, you know, whether age, gender, ethnicity, and just even whether there's any rapport or things like that. And I suppose that seems unfair to me, really. Well, obviously the, you know, the prejudice is unfair. So if we can make recruitment more systematic and scientific, that 
you know, I can see value in that and personality tests could potentially, uh, help towards that. But having said that, you know, as the documentary persona documentary shows so effectively, obviously all sorts of, um, other issues then unfortunately can come into play using personality tests, especially if the tests are used as a you know, a cunning way to measure other things, which is one of the things the documentary covers, you know, the idea, for example, that, that you can use personality tests to detect mental health problems, for example, and then filter out candidates who have mental health problems, which I, from the documentary I know is illegal in States anyway. So there are other issues, you know, arising that way. I can see that obviously that's completely unfair. Uh, the other thing is if you're going to use personality tests in recruitment, you know, they must be, it's imperative. They must be grounded in, um, respected and established scientific theory, personality science, you know, and scientific theory, which as I mentioned earlier, the Myers-Briggs is not, and there are, there are other, many other personality tests, which are not, which, um, occupational recruiters are, are using. So. It needs to be done scientifically. It needs to be done carefully and sensitively and, and, and not, you know, as a cunning, uh, deceptive way to measure other things, you know, and you're right to an extent, you know, the, the idea of using personality tests in recruitment does contradict the thesis of my book because our personalities are not fixed and we can't change them. So I was thinking about that, you know, maybe one way recruiters could be respectful of people's capability of change would be to ask them, they, they could measure their personalities as they are now, but perhaps they could also ask them about the person that they aspire to be, you know, what kind of person are you striving to be? And maybe that could bring in an element of potential it's a recruitment, which would be fairer than judging people as if they're of, of a fixed type. Let me tell you, let me tell you, Christian, I love how you ended that answer, right? Like if they were going to do that, you know, asking who, who they aspire to be, you know, and it seems like a cliche question, but I think that that'd be, you know, an interesting type deal and it helps with like, you know, motivation, uh, for growth, right? Like if I got hired and, you know, they're like, Hey, what are your goals? What do you hope to be? And then like on my, uh, annual review, if we looked at it and it's like, Oh, did you accomplish this? Or, you know, whatever. Um, because I know a lot of us, we, we work better when we have some kind of goal out there, but yeah, then employers could also see the change and, and how people grow. But, but yeah, as the documentary, um, discuss, I hope everybody, you know, uh, if you, if you're interested in this personality stuff, you go check it out. It's called persona and it's on, um, HBO max. But I think you also brought up a great point. Like even if we eliminated the personality test, there's so many different biases and, you know, advantages and stuff like that. I've been talking a lot about our, just, uh, uh, education system lately. And, you know, for, for example, one of the main ways that, you know, people get a job is because they know somebody and get referred to the job. Right. And it's about the connections you make and stuff like that. And that has nothing to do with personality, but it is, you know, this kind of form of a bias, right. 
But also, you know, there was this one book I was reading, it was called Pedigree, and it was uh, all about what happens to like Ivy League kids after they graduate college and they're going out to try to work on Wall Street or these, you know, Fortune 500 companies and all that. And it was disgusting. You know, there were, there were all these, you know, stories about how so much of it was based on, you know, who they know, what their hobbies were. Um, sometimes like, you know, these people big companies or depending on the department, they're like, yeah, we just want to like, uh, you know, hire someone who who's cool. And like, we can hang out with and have some drinks with, you know what I mean? So, so, you know, and the, I, I don't know, that's, that's part of human nature. I don't know if we could ever fully, you know, eliminate something like that, but it's just crazy to imagine that even if you are the most qualified person, uh, if you're not, you know, this, this outgoing type, or if you are an outgoing type, let's, let's say you, you're, you're extroverted and they're looking for a more introverted person, you know, it's just those, those things are going to happen. So, so it's tricky. That's why I always apply to a bunch of jobs and <laughs> see what happens. Um, but thankfully I haven't had to do that in a while, but, but anyways, so, so speaking of, uh, judging people, right. Uh, you have a part in the book where you talk about the criminal justice system. And I, I really appreciated how you wrote about the fact that our current justice systems don't really do much, uh, when it comes to helping people grow and change, right? Like, uh, I actually have an upcoming episode with, uh, Greg Caruso, where we talk about it and, you know, most, most of the, you know, the justice system, it seems like punishment, right? Like it's, it's focused on punishment rather than, Hey, let's rehabilitate reform, get people, you know, out there. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of people, you know, they're, they're still judged harshly after release, right? Like that's another thing that comes up in, you know, applying for jobs. And I can go about on about that all day where, you know, people stay stuck in this cycle because they want to go, they want to go out leave and they want to do good. And they, you know, want to try and stuff like that. But because of something that happened in their past and this idea that people can't change, it could stop them from getting, you know, a decent job. Um, so anyways, I, I guess, uh, my question is, do you think a lack of understanding about, you know, some of the science behind personality change makes it difficult for people to like forgive those who have, uh, done jail time? Um, and, and if it was up to you, Christian, how, how would the Chris, uh, criminal justice system do a little bit better job of rehabilitating people to encourage positive change? Yeah, I, absolutely. I would say misunderstandings about personality are, are making life harder for people who are in or uh, have been in prison. You know, it's all the research on personality change is, is showing that personality is, uh, is going to be changed by going to prison and that we should be a lot more, a lot more mindful of that. We should have a, you know, a focus on rehabilitation rather than punishment. And there are some early findings coming out suggesting, unfortunately, that the culture within prisons and harsh long prison sentences are likely to be shaping inmates personality traits, uh, in, in a bad way, in an unhelpful way, uh, you know, psychologists talk about, uh, prisonization or, uh, post-incarceration syndrome. They refer to these kind of phenomena of how inmates are changed by the experience. And the research suggests people come out, you know, with, uh, from prison, finding it extremely hard to trust others, you know, because of, because of how the culture they've had to cope with in prison. 
they they talk about having an, an emotional numbing as well. So in, in trait terms, you can see this very much as reductions in trait agreeability, you know, which is far from ideal for a person coming out of prison and trying to um, fit back into society and build their lives again. So I think we need to be much more mindful of that as a society and be more, well, you know, realize that by being f focused on being punitive, that it's going to backfire anyway, because you're, you're, what well, it's not going to be good for society to, to like people who have committed crimes to then put them through a prison situation that, um, harms their personality so that they're more likely to commit crime, you know, on release. It, it makes much more sense to try and create a culture in prison or, you know, that's if prison is absolutely necessary create a culture that will have a beneficial impact on, on inmates' personalities. And our understanding of how to do that is growing. Uh, so, you know, policymakers could start to draw on the personality change literature to inform, uh, prison regimes and sentencing that there is, you know, there are some findings coming out that offer hope. There was a Swedish study that found inmates after some months in prison had it actually increased conscientiousness, which does fit with some of what we know about, you know, for example, how job roles can, positive job experiences can increase people's conscientiousness. And those same kind of principles could be applied in prison in that Swedish study. In Sweden, they do have a much more of a focus on rehab. Uh, than in America, but studies like that show there is hope for how the prison experience could be used in a more positive way. And I mean, your, your question about this reminded me actually of how many of the, the case studies that I feature in my book, the positive case studies of people who have achieved positive personality change are people who, uh, did have a criminal background and, and all spent time in prison. Uh, people like, um, Nedim Yazart, who was a Danish gang leader turned youth mentor or Katra Corbett, who was a petty drug dealer and, uh, turned ultra runner. She's, she's one of the few people in the world who has run 100 miles or 100 times or Majid Nawaz, who was a terrorist sympathizer and uh, he's now a peace campaigner. So, you know, it's, it's worth remembering, you know, people's ability to reform and rehabilitate and change their personalities for the better. And to think of that when we're judging criminals and deciding what, you know, how to punish criminals, um, remember that capability for positive change and the importance of rehab. Yeah, and and I'm I'm glad you brought up that you know that first part. That was even something I, <laughs> I thought of as I was you know asking that question. But yeah, uh, going to prison can change you for the worse too, right? Like in in you know in certain prisons, like you you got to learn how to adapt and how to survive and and all of that. And you're around people, and you know I I've been just recently diving into uh, more and more books on the justice system and. You know, just stories of uh, are are just insanely high prison rates. Um, 
uh, people getting arrested for minor crimes, getting put in prison and having to stay there while they wait for their hearing because they can't post bail because they're, you know, broken, you know, uh, and, and even wrongful convictions, right? There's so many people landing in the system who don't deserve to be there, right? So we're talking about plenty of, you know, people who might, you know, be a good person, decent person, right? And then we toss them into the situation where they have to become the person that they never were to begin with, with these other people who should be, you know, rehabilitated and, you know, all that. But, but yeah, I, I, you know, couldn't have said it better than myself. It's, it's something that I've been really passionate about, about, you know, just believing that people can grow and change. I think there are very, very, very rare instances where that's not the case, but as someone who got sober and has completely changed and as someone who has known, uh, like not known, like I currently know, like, uh, many, many other addicts and alcoholics who have stayed sober and they are just completely different people. Like, uh, the, the guys from my sober living, when we got sober in 2012, there's a handful of us who are still sober and I've seen the growth and change, you know, in, in all of us. Um, but yeah, so, uh, Christian, I got one more question for you before I let you go. And I wanted to talk about, uh, <laughs> like speaking of prisons, I want to talk about the fun subject of psychopaths. All right. So in your book, you reference some of the work, uh, from Kevin Dutton and his book on, on psychopaths. I absolutely love that book. And his new book is awesome too. Um, but yeah, so, so in his book, that was the first time I heard someone actually argue that sometimes, sometimes, uh, psychopathic personality traits can be beneficial, but you also discuss this in your book as well. So for those who have yet to read the book, and I know they're going to go out and buy a copy as soon as we're done with this conversation, but can you give some examples of what type of, uh, uh, psychopathic traits might be beneficial in certain situations? And with these beneficial traits, do you think there are some misconceptions or, or stigma around people who have some of these personality traits? Well, there's growing recognition of something researchers call uh, successful psychopaths. So these are people in life um, who, uh, be they chief executive officers or top surgeons or special forces operatives who actually score highly on some aspects of psychopathy, especially the sub-trait known as fearless dominance. And it does have obvious advantages. Um, so I, I should say the successful psychopaths, they score highly on fearless dominance, but they don't have the criminality in their, in their backgrounds. So they, they, it's as if they found other outlets for their daring do and their, this incredible fearless dominance is a little bit like having incredibly low neuroticism. So it's the, these are people as Kevin Dutton puts it, I think in his book, these are people who, uh, it's as if they have ice running through their veins. So, um. They, that's why they make such fantastic, uh, special forces, uh, team members, or, you know, you can imagine even doing something like surgery, uh, it takes incredible calm and focus and nerves would be far from ideal when you're holding a scalpel over someone's body. So, um, yeah. And, and, and even political leaders, some of the most successful, so some of the more successful us presidents 
uh, personality psychologists have rated their personalities retrospectively and they think they scored highly on this uh, psycho, uh, psychopathy subtrait of Phyllis dominance. And then uh, I should say as well, um, yeah, the, the capacity for change comes into play here as well. So increasing evidence suggests that people who score highly on psychopathy, they too um, can learn to change for the better. Uh, there's an approach called cognitive uh, remediation training. So people scoring highly in psychopathy can be taught through practice to pay more attention to other people's feelings and emotions, to be more empathic in other words. So it's not that psychopaths are incapable, it's that they, by nature, their nature, they don't pay much attention to other people's feelings and emotions. But it's within their power to do so, and they can learn to. So I th again, it's this positive message of change. And uh, as well, there's a, a other findings suggest, you know, many psychopaths, they have this, uh, another aspect of it is it's, is it's a bit like extreme extroversion. And so they're drawn, drawn to risk and reward. And, you know, if people with these kind of personalities can be steered towards positive outlets for their traits, it's another way to kind of change them, uh, in a constructive and beneficial way, like towards heroism, for example, uh, and away from criminality because they, they've got that drive there for risk taking. And that lack of fear, which you can imagine in certain situations or cultures or given a certain upbringing could lead them toward criminality. But if they, people like this with these trait profiles can be a, you know, taught more empathy, but be steered towards expressing their traits in a positive, constructive way, then, then, you know, there's a chance. Uh, for them to have a better lives and for society to benefit from people with their kind of personalities rather than um, suffer the consequences of them going into into criminality. Yeah, and, and, and you know, both your book and Kevin Dunn's book, I also read another one, can't remember the book off the top of my head, uh, but, but that book, it was about uh, this dude, I think it was a, uh, a neuroscientist or brain surgeon, something to do with the brain, and he finds out that like, uh, he has psychopathic traits, right? And then it all starts clicking and making sense. But anyways, it, and you know, uh, what I learned from like your book and Kevin Dunn's book is that sometimes you, you want that, right? Like, for example, I think the best example out there is, you know, uh, would you want you, would you want a highly, like someone who's always empathetic, like to be your surgeon, right? Like constantly high in empathy, right? Like, they, they couldn't cut you open without feeling terrible. And how would they do the surgery? You know? So there's, there, you know, there's, there's some like, you know, flexibility with it too, but you know, there, there's these, uh, these other careers and stuff like that, like, you know, successful psychopaths. And, and that's interesting too. You talked about, you know, they, they have certain therapies for psycho psychopaths. And I think, you know, as you were talking that too, I'm like, I hope people understand the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths because sometimes people use those uh you know interchangeably and stuff but that that's really interesting that you know if people want to they can work on the change like like that uh guy who wrote the book i was just talking about um 
you know, he's a he's a mostly good dude, right? Uh, you know, his family and friends, like when he figured this out, they're like, yeah, you could be pretty like selfish, self-centered or just me, 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 you know, and talk about different instances. But, you know, he can recognize them and he does care about people and all of that. But anyways, I uh, love the book and I'm so glad that we were able to, you know, have you come on and chat about it. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Christian. So, well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, it was a pleasure to appear on your show and uh, take care. Speak soon. All right. That was my conversation with Christian. And I hope, I hope you all, you know, enjoyed that and you, and you learned something. Uh, yeah. So like we kind of discussed the Myers-Briggs isn't really a scientifically valid, uh, personality test, even though people love using it. Um, but there is a lot of science around the fact that we, we can change. All right. And I, you know, as somebody who's constantly working on my mental health, that's something that I, I always have to remember, because like I said, you know, uh, I was stuck for a very long time thinking I couldn't change. So yeah, make sure you check out the description below, make sure you are following Christian and get grab a copy of his book, be who you want. It's awesome. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, this is one that I listened to uh, the audio format. So it's available in the audio format as well. All right. But huge thanks to Christian. And yeah, before I let you go, while you're down in the description, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. And we made a deal before this episode that if you enjoyed it and you're not yet, make sure you're following or subscribed to the podcast. And if you already are, Go, go find a friend, tell them to follow and subscribe. All right. <laughs> but yeah, if you want, if you want another way to, uh, you know, completely support uh, the podcast for free, um, a great thing to do is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. And yeah, like I said, I was being serious, like sharing this podcast with a friend, it really helps out. It, it shows the algorithms like, oh, people like this, boom shares it a bit more. All right. But some other ways that you can help support the podcast and my insane reading habit. Uh, there's some links down below. Uh, you can head to the rewiredsoul.com. I've self-published some books on, you know, mental health. I even have a book called Hope. Um, and it's my personal story. So I kind of tell the story of how I changed in my early years of, you know, sobriety and all that. Um, but yeah, there's also a link uh, if you want to become a patron. And there's also an affiliate link for better help online therapy. So yeah, um, something I mentioned, you know, in this podcast is 2019. It was a huge shakeup in my life. And I can see, you know, I can reflect and see how I've changed since then. And a lot of it was because during that difficult time, um, I, you know, I was using better help online therapy and working with an awesome therapist. So uh, if you are interested in working with a licensed therapist from your state and it's affordable and it's online from the comfort of your own home or wherever you want to be, check out that affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. All right. So another huge thank you uh, to Christian for taking the time to come on and thank you everybody who has made it this far and listened to the whole episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And Aside from having an amazing rest of your day, make sure that you come back tomorrow because I have another new episode and we're going to be talking about the fun subject of lies. All right. So yeah, have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time.